Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall with MarketScale, and we are so glad that you found us today. On this episode, we have a three-time returning guest, Tony Wan. Tony, how are you doing? I'm good, J.W. Thank you for having me. The Hopefully, the third time is the charm. I believe it will be. Um, and we've had you on about every six months to give us a state of EdTech investment. Um, at the last two times you joined us uh, in January and uh, last summer, uh, you were running uh, EdSearch. Um, and now you have made a transition. So before we get into the report and the state of EdTech, uh, give our audience a little bit of background on yourself and uh, the recent transition. Yeah. Um, in spring, I transitioned from EdSurge uh, into my current role at Reach Capital. Uh, we are a venture capital firm that focuses on education technology investments. Um, focus mostly on the early stage uh, investments. So from seed series A and uh, some series B, uh, the team has been doing this for uh, over a decade. Reach Capital was founded in 2015, but it traces its roots uh, to a seed fund uh, at a nonprofit called the New Schools Venture Fund. And it's been a team uh, and work that I've followed and covered um, over the years uh, while I was at EdSearch. So I've gotten to know the partners really well. Even before I uh, joined EdSearch, I, um, I don't know if I've told a story before, I started a, uh, tried to build a math game and run a math, uh, you know, math game startup and even pitched some of the partners on that endeavor before. So um, yeah, some of, the, you know, uh, some of my colleagues uh, and I kind of go you know, back even before EdSearch. So when I was, um, you know, thinking about my next moves, um, you know, I've always liked uh, learning and covering the investment side and wanted an opportunity to kind of get more, uh, kind of get back into some of the entrepreneurial um, efforts happening and supporting entrepreneurs. And um, yeah, decided to join Reach Capital as their head of investor content. Um, I know that's a new title, uh, maybe an unusual title, but um, you know, that means sharing information and research that, um, you know, that I come across in the course of my work, sharing some of the research that my colleagues kind of come across in the course of their working diligence. Um, and also, you know, just helping with the internal team and the portfolio company with some of their own kind of content uh, strategy and thinking and needs. So it's good to, you know, my head might have changed, but, you know, I'm still looking at and kind of writing about a lot of the same things. Absolutely. And their Reach is very ha uh, lucky to have you on their team. So congratulations to Reach um, after a great 10-year run uh, at EdSurge. What has been the biggest uh, change from kind of uh, covering uh, the news to being a part of making the news? I think a couple of things that kind of stood out to me. Um, one is that the breadth of ideas and entrepreneurs that we see on a week-to-week -week basis uh, is a lot bigger than I thought. And so when I say that, I mean that when I usually think of EdTech, um, you know, as my as the former managing editor of EdSurge, you know, I think about K-12, higher ed, uh, post-secondary, some early childhood. But in the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of uh, EdTech merge and intersect with other industries um, like family tech. Uh, for instance, you know, where early childhood and family tech intersects, you know, there's quite, quite a bit of overlap there. Um, things moving into like mental health or actually physical health, right? Where does ed tech 
you know, where does ed tech end and where does, you know, health and fitness begin, right? Those lines are very blurry. So as the industry evolves, um, I'm really like surprised and at like how much new things I'm learning about like different kinds of markets where there is certainly an education or a learning and development component to it. So that's one of the things. Um, the other thing to which I you know, alluded to in the piece that I just wrote is just the amount of uh, the pace and the flurry of kind of the, the deals that are happening uh, in this space. So about a decade ago, when you could count the number of ed tech investors on your hands, and by that, I mean like not ed tech focused investors, but any investor that did an ed tech deal, now you're seeing you know, um, firms across the spectrum from, um, you know, family funds to small funds to some of the, you know, very deep pocketed funds uh, get in on this space. So that's been tremendously exciting and also a bit of a doozy as well to, uh, you know, see all this interest and activity uh, happening over the past couple of years. Yeah, and before we get into the investment side, it seems like another big buzzword um, recently is pre-K to gray. Um, is that the, you know, education, the continuing learner, the lifelong learner is now more than ever thriving um, beyond just, you know, school years and, and college, really adult learning uh, at all ages and upskilling has seemed to really uh, found its footing in the last year or two uh, as it has been around for a while, but it's really kind of coming to life. Um, is that a, a trend that you would foresee continuing to boom? Well, certainly. I mean, I think that education is no, not really confined to your schooling years. I think, um, you know, even before this, uh, you know, recent boom, um, there has been an ongoing kind of series of research and attention paid to the importance of uh, early childhood development um, and the importance of families uh, and um, how big of a role that they play. Uh, in helping a child's brain develop, you know, before the age of three. Um, so there's been a lot of research and a groundswell of, you know, momentum around that. Um, so that's at the early end of the spectrum. And then at the later end, you know, right now we're coming out of, uh, you know, of a global health crisis and, you know, the economy is, uh, it looks like it's doing well by Wall Street standards, but, you know, the reality is that there are still some trailing effects that we are seeing in terms of a lot of, uh, you know, unemployment and underemployment. And also at the same time, you know, companies say they are having a hard time trying to fill uh, roles, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, and that spans from, you know, retail, uh, you know, retail worker roles to more specialized roles. So, you know, one of the things that kind of strikes me is this kind of mismatch, I think, in that there are a lot of recent college graduates who say they are underemployed and unemployed at the same time that companies are saying they're having a hard time employing people. So... Uh, you know, there's certainly a lot uh, of kind of, you know, problems and opportunities, right, that that presents. Um, and I think that's going to continue to beget uh, additional kind of innovation and investments. All right. So let's get into the numbers at a, a macro level first. Give us the state of play from 2019 to 20 and then from 2020 to the first half of 2021. Yeah. So this is um, something that I've, you know, uh, started doing it at Surge, um, you know, I'm tracking the investment capital uh, for the U.S. ed tech industry. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, uh, perhaps to, to no surprise, um, you know, the pandemic and the forced kind of shift to remote learning has 
um, you know, for, um, you know, forced a lot of people to try ed tech, um, you know, some of them for the first time. Uh, and entailing that, I think, you know, that's kind of captured a lot of attention uh, from parents and families alike, and uh, also investors uh, in the investment community, because, you know, investors are parents too, and they get to see up close what the, the experiences are like. So in 2020, um, I tell like about $2.2 billion of investment capital in uh, for US-based education technology companies. And that was already a record, I think, um, for the last decade or since I've been tracking it in around 2015, 2016. Um, what I did, uh, what I saw in Tally for the first half of 2021, so that's from January through the end of June, uh, was that the investment capital hit $3.2 billion, which already blows, uh, you know, last year's total record kind of out of the water. So, you know, the, the headline is that in, uh, in the first six months of 2021, we, uh, we saw $3.2 billion of capital invested in U.S. tech companies. And that's already about $1 billion more than we saw for the entirety of 2020 which was a record year. And now the estimates are five, five and a half billion by the end of this year. That's my estimate based on the split between first half and second half uh, capital in previous years. It usually uh, tilts a little bit heavier uh, towards the first half of the year. Um, so, you know, based on that projection, uh, we're going to see, you know, I'm projecting $5.5 billion at the time of writing. Now, the funny thing is, um, you know, this is this art the article I just wrote is based on the first six months of announced deals. On the day that this article published on July 1st, on the first day of the second half of 2021, um, there was a deal announced uh, by a company called Articulate that is that that, that does enterprise learning and they raised $1.5 billion on one day. So um, I think that just speaks to like what a crazy week, you know, the last week of June has been. Uh, and, you know, I already had to redo my numbers once because I started doing this research uh, the weekend before the last week of June, not anticipating all the activity that we would see, uh, you know, during that final week of June. It's like everyone wanted to get all the big deals announced before the 4th of July and, you know, start, start the fireworks early. I was just about to say that there were big fireworks uh, in the last week or two. Um, and we can start with Articulate. I'd love to just break down um, some of these big deals and, and get your thoughts on uh, why uh, they happened, because I know a few of them were surprises to the market uh, to some degree. And, and are they good deals? Are they, are they going to pan out? If you want to maybe start and just tell our audience a little bit about the Articulate deal, um, if you've <laughs> brushed up on that here in the last couple of days, um, and then maybe we'll jump to uh, Duolingo next. Yeah, so um, Articulate is uh, is an online learning platform that is, uh, I believe, is tailored, uh, you know, for organizations and companies to create uh, online training apps for, um, you know, their um, their employees. Um, it really fits, you know, within this ongoing trend of uh, workforce development and training that uh, we've been seeing. Um, they are certainly not the only ones, uh, you know, working and being able to raise capital in this space. On the other list, uh, you know, other companies on kind of the 10 biggest deals, you know, we see a couple others as well. There's, um, you know, Kajabi, uh, which raised $550 million, um, which is, uh, you know, offering up platforms that let uh, entrepreneurs and uh, corporate learners kind of, you know, build and develop their own courses kind of in a similar spirit. 
We also have uh, Degreed uh, on a top 10 list. Um, they are an upskilling platform uh, used by uh, companies to help their employers uh, train and develop. So, um, you know, this theme of continuous learning in the workforce is um, something that we've seen a lot of companies kind of go after and a lot of, uh, and followed by a lot of investment capital. I think that, you know, we kind of, on a more broad level, I think a lot of companies are, you know, realizing that, you know, it's a lot better to, you know, support and, you know, train and build up your own uh, workforce than it, uh, than it is to kind of like hire uh, for them. So, you know, you, you want to build and develop from the ground up um, rather than, you know, um, hire from the outside. Yeah. And I also, uh, it seems like there's this um, new hunger for knowledge, hunger for upskilling uh, the individuals. If a company is not providing opportunities, they're going to go somewhere else um, and find those opportunities, whether that's finding other programs or finding other companies that do provide uh, these services. So it feels like we're making that transition from a nice to have to a must have um, in this market. Yeah, there was a recent survey, I think, from Prudential, uh, Prudential, yeah, that um, that says that, you know, I think like over half of American workers say that they would, um, I think they would switch to a new industry if they had the opportunity to, to retrain. Right. And so, you know, this hunger for career mobility is out there. And I think it forces companies to kind of readjust their mindset in that um, if they're going to stay competitive, they have to offer not just a job, but uh, a career. Yeah. And a career path. And then the big misconception uh, is, well, what if we provide this training and then they take that and they leave and go somewhere else? And, and really, the numbers don't show that. The numbers show that they are more likely to stay and retain that top talent because you're investing in them and they feel that. Um, that connection to the company. So uh, an exciting space for sure. And, uh, and we'll see as there's more competition and uh, more opportunity uh, where that one goes. Uh, the next one I want to touch base on is, is Duolingo, popular learning uh, la language learning app uh, developer. Tell us a little bit about Duolingo and their filing for an IPO. Yeah, so that uh, their IPO um, wasn't a surprise. I think they've uh, publicly hinted and said that, hey, this was uh, going to be part of our plans. Um, and, you know, Duolingo is uh, if for anyone following the app charts um, or just uh, as, you know, looking through the Google Play or Apple Store, you know, you've seen, you know, that bird up there, uh, you know, on, on the top list. Um, they have, uh, you know, they saw a lot of growth, certainly over uh, during the pandemic. Uh, they published a, a blog post, I think, about a month or so after, uh, you know, the outbreak in the U.S. showing just how much traffic has spiked kind of across, uh, across the world. So, uh, you know, Duolingo um, may not be as surprising uh, as far as an IPO candidate goes. Um, one thing that was interesting, though, when I looked in their S1 filing is that, I think while their success as a commercial uh, as a consumer app uh, is pretty well known, um, there was one detail that in their filing that said that they estimate that about like forty percent of U.S. foreign language teachers uh, are using Duolingo. Uh, now I'm trying to follow up uh, on that, but um, but you know that's a pretty startling stat, right? You know, give them the benefit of the doubt, right? They're filing this so um, in, in with an S one, but. You know, that's a pretty compelling stat because uh, that shows that uh, the way that a consumer focus app can start making inroads and uh, gain adoption among teachers in schools. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of times you see the opposite uh, company builds for schools and then they try to spin off a, a parent app or a student app. Um, so that is a, a considerable number. 
And uh, that's why we have you here to dive into the S-1 filings and uh, share with our audience uh, things they may not uh, read in the, the headlines. Um, another one uh, filing for an IPO is uh, Instructure, uh, and they seem to have a really interesting story of kind of how they started and, and where they've gone with the company. Um, is there a surprise there? And give us kind of a little background on Instructure. Um, the Instructure, they are the company that uh, that developed the Canvas learning management system. So Canvas is an L, uh, LMS, is the acronym for their software. And uh, it has a pretty sizable footprint uh, in higher education. Uh, they compete with the likes of Blackboard um, and they are starting to make inroads in the K-12. Now, the surprising th thing about Instructure that surprised me was just the timing um, of them going public again, because Instructure did go public. Uh, once uh, last decade, I, I, I forgot what year, and they were a publicly traded company for I think a, a couple years or a few years, um, and then uh, they were taken private. Um, one of the issues I think um, was they had a corporate learning uh, arm a version of the LMS called Bridge, um, and that was a uh, you know that was a, that was a tool that I think struggled a little bit to try to uh, at least grow at the pace that you know their uh, education LMS was growing. Um, so there was a lot of talk about what they're going to do with Bridge. Is it a little, is it just kind of like weighing on the growth? And ultimately, um, you know, after they were taken private, uh, they just divested Bridge. You know, they they, they sold the assets to focus on K twelve and higher ed. And it looks like, you know, this IPO, this is like their, their, their second go around and an IPO with a much more, uh, I would say, a more focused and a laner uh, offering. And is that something you've seen other ed tech companies do successfully before? Is it kind of the second time around IPO where they're more focused and successful? Or uh, do you worry about this one a little bit? Mm, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't know if I've seen this, you know, uh, before, at least this, this kind of turnaround in such a quick time frame for a second at an IPO. So, you know, I think the jury is a little bit still uh, out there. I hesitate to say, you know, whether or not this is like a good or, or, or you know, or, or, or challenging sign for instructor. Um, you know, certainly it feels like by narrowing down and focusing on kind of your core kind of specialty and kind of unique uh, position in the education market, um, you know, maybe, you know, some people like that focus, you know, investors or the public markets may like that focus a little bit more. So I think we'll see. All right. And one that maybe is a little more of a slam dunk, and I was not familiar with the parent company, Age of Learning, uh, but they're the creator of ABC Mouse, which uh, my young ones uh, sometimes will get to watch uh, Baby First TV. And I swear ABC Mouse owns that network or all the advertising for it because their commercials are on all the time. Um, they just raised 300 million and they're at a $3 billion valuation. Uh, give us a little bit of story and background on Age of Learning and ABC Mouse. Yeah, so ABC Mouse has been around for, I think, uh, at least a decade, maybe even closer to two decades. I don't quite uh, I don't remember specific founding date, but they make uh, a very popular, uh, you know, educational app, um, you know, for young children. I think their focus is on ages, I think, two to eight um, to, you know, learn, um, you know, to kind of build some of their fundamental, you know, skills, uh, you know, in, in, in math and reading and sounds, phonics, um, those kinds of uh, those kinds of activities. So I would say that, I mean, they are not a traditional, they haven't gone a traditional like venture route. I mean, they, I think they grew organically for a long time. 
Um, and it's in the past, I think, rec in, in recent years that they've started to take in, uh, you know, a lot of money, that, you know, we are some of these bigger growth uh, investment funds. So uh, this recent deal, uh, as you said, is $300 million at a $3 billion valuation. But, um, you know, they have raised uh, before from uh, some pretty sizable funds. So um, they were a dark horse on my radar maybe a few years ago, but like uh, not anymore. Like they are owning that consumer. Um, uh, they're owning that consumer kind of, I would say early elementary grade level uh, app. And with this investment, are they planning to move more into uh, the institutional realm or are they just looking to grow uh, continuously in the consumer area? Um, I know that they've made a little bit of headway in the, uh, you know, in, in the institution, you know, in the uh, formal education space. I know that they make their apps available for um, uh, access in libraries. Um, so I think, you know, they've made some inroads there, but I, I, I am not sure. I mean, I think that they are the consumer play seems to be pretty successful for them and um, they have uh, global ambitions. Um, you know, to expand the, their footprint and I would expect them to kind of focus, uh, you know, keep kind of honing in on that and um, kind of, you know, fine tuning that formula that's worked so well for them. Okay, last but not least, uh, we've got the surprise deal uh, to many in the market uh, to you acquiring edX for 800 million. Uh, was that a surprise to you? Yes, that was a surprise to me, even as someone who's kind of covered both, uh, you know, both organizations, um, you know, I would say, you know, fairly regularly, you know, in my past uh, career as a journalist, um, you know, to you is best known as being the publicly traded provider of, uh, you know, what they call online program management services, which is the way of they uh, saying that they work with um, colleges and universities to create undergraduate and graduate online programs. Um, they've been expanding uh, over the years and extending their services into offering boot camps and short form courses, you know, they, and, you know, both of these uh, offerings came about via uh, an acquisition of other companies as well. Um, so, I mean, in a way, you know, given that trend, uh, their history, it shouldn't be that surprising. So to you is maybe a little more familiar as a public company, but tell us a little bit about edX. I believe that's a um, partnership between MIT and Harvard, maybe some other universities. Yes. So edX was one of the um, three, you know, big MOOC platforms uh, that came out in 2012. Um, and unlike Coursera, which is publicly traded and Udacity, which has kind of pivoted a little bit away from MOOCs to working more with companies to create tech uh, technical courses, um, edX has really kind of stuck to its, uh, you know, to its mission as a nonprofit um, to really work with universities and researchers uh, and others to, you know, not just build and create and offer, um, you know, online learning course uh, programs, but also help kind of accelerate and advance the research into, um, you know, what good online learning can, can look like. Um, and so with edX, um, they have, they, they certainly have a very high caliber of university partners, um, you know, just as good as, you know, their competitor Coursera, which is, you know, which I think of as their for-profit version of them. Um, and the thing about edX though, is I think that, you know, their growth in terms of their revenue and enrollments hasn't really quite kind of matched up 
to that of Coursera uh, over the years. I think Coursera has really taken off in terms of, you know, their reach and their business during the course of the pandemic. Um, edX was, uh, was a little bit more, a little bit more modest. So, you know, in a way, I think that I see this, uh, this deal as a way for, you know, edX to be able to tap into some of the things that TU does very well, which is, um, you know, they have, uh, you know, very good at marketing, right? Marketing is, you know, one of their strengths uh, of uh, how they, you know, grow, you know, their online programs. And I think, uh, I would imagine that, you know, on the TU side, I think edX having like a very big top of the funnel platform, you know, for users that, um, you know, wouldn't be a surprise if they hope to convert, right, some of those uh, users onto some of to use uh, offerings, whether it's the online programs uh, uh, for undergraduate and graduate or for some of the short courses. Yeah, and on its surface, some analysts thought, man, this may not make a lot of sense. And now as it's kind of uh, being flushed out, I think a lot of the investment community is going, oh, wow, this could be a really, really great partnership. Um, where do you fall on that spectrum? Or are you still kind of in the middle on we'll wait and see? You know, I think I'm seeing like kind of this merger of like two, <laughs> two acronyms that, you know, that we've seen a lot in higher ed, like MOOCs, right? The Massive Open Online Courses and OPMs, right? You know, online program managers like uh, 2Us and the noodles of the world that um, kind of, I mean, they are both, you know, kind of, Come, like, I think coming together to meet somewhere in the middle, right? I mean, all in the spirit of helping, uh, working with universities who offer uh, and distribute online, you know, accredited programs uh, for students, hopefully in a way that's, you know, more effective, engaging and more accessible. So whether it's a full-fledged like OPM, whether it's like a course like uh, that you would find on Coursera or edX, you know, I think we're seeing, you know, the, you know, MOOCs and OPMs kind of like kind of come and, and bleed together. And, you know, I think this is something that happens, uh, you know, as an industry, industry matures and consolidates that, you know, whether one, where there were once, you know, pretty stark lines in terms of like business models and uh, offerings and the uh, kinds of customers and users, you know, we're seeing them kind of, you know, blur a little bit and you know there's the, the gray areas you know when these things come together and that's i think where some of the excitement and uh, opportunity and potential uh is you know is uh, is happening and can be realized and hopefully good news for the world uh harvard and mit are not cashing out that 800 million uh but forming a uh, a new nonprofit to continue uh growing the open source components as well as doing research on online learning best practices that hopefully will continue to benefit not only the industry, but the end users, the learners. Yeah, you know, I think that um, edX has had a strong commitment to, you know, being, um, you know, being open. And that just doesn't just mean, you know, um, having people uh, kind of use their platform to build courses, but um, also working with researchers as well to kind of take some of the anonymized data um, and, and, you know, take a look at that and see what we can glean about, uh, you know, what, what effective and engaging online instruction looks like. And, um, you know, Hopefully, you know, with the creation of this new nonprofit entity that this $800 million will fund, that they continue uh, with that mission. And because it's something that will, you know, benefit the, the industry and the community uh, and I think academia and research as a whole. Absolutely. It seems like a win-win where Harvard, MIT, the others in that group can can focus more on that research, which is what they're great at, and then let a 2U take 
PFX platform uh, to the next level from a business standpoint and, and hopefully continue to grow it. Um, we've talked about a lot of big deals. Um, if you subtract some of those big deals, um, do you, off the top of your head, have the numbers on kind of the growth with all the other deals? Are we still seeing um, quite a, a volume increase um, just overall, or has it been these big deals really skewing the data uh, in the last six months? Um, I think we have seen a good number of, I would say, $100 million plus deals in the first six months alone. So I think that I counted, I think, eight um, you know, eight investment deals um, in the first half of 2021 that were at least $100 million. So, you know, I think that this is a new, um, you know, this is a newer kind of phenomenon we're seeing, at least in this industry. And I would expect that uh, to, to, to grow. You know, I would continue to see this pattern keep uh, coming on. Particular Global is the perfect example. I mean, that is now, I think, the biggest deal uh, in the U.S., you know, for a U.S.-based edtech company at $1.5 billion. And also wondering with all of the federal funding coming into, the, especially the K-12 market, um, that has to also be part of this uh, fueling of growth. Uh, even though a lot of these funds are one-time, they'll be rolling out over a few years. Um, do you see uh, some kind of diminishing returns as those funds are going to uh, wear out? I know you've got a crystal ball uh, with you at all times. Um, is that a part of this surge? And, and will that continue post uh, the, the big funding dollars coming through? Um, so I think that the one of the things that the pandemic has done is going to help accelerate uh, at least on the infrastructure side, some of the things that the market needs to su sustain digital uh, digital learning, right? So issues around devices, you know, does each student have a device? You know, we saw a lot of schools scramble and struggle, uh, you know, to get enough devices to support remote learning. Um, you know, I think hopefully right now, um, I don't know what the latest is, but uh, hopefully I think some of the device backlogs may hopefully are not as serious as they were back, you know, during last spring. Um, so devices is one thing. Uh, the other thing that we've seen kind of, a lot of attention on is bandwidth, right? So you have devices, but you need internet, you know, bandwidth, right? You need the internet to be able to access the, these digital learning tools. That was another big kind of barrier or a gap last spring. Um, now we're seeing more, you know, federal funding from the FCC to, you know, help create, uh, you know, to establish these uh, emergency connectivity funds, especially for uh, rural areas, areas that are often like, um, you know, little bit behind infrastructure to help them kind of catch up to speed on that. So on the federal uh, funding side, I think that there's been a lot of um, infrastructure uh, accelerated um, due to the needs of the pandemic. I think the other part of this too is that um, there's now a global market. Um, there's a bigger global market for US tech products. Uh, as I mentioned, Duolingo saw a lot of usage spike across, uh, across the globe. Um, you know, similarly, you know, Quizlet uh, and Google Classroom have also, you know, published reports around how much uh, usage they're seeing and demand they're seeing from markets like, uh, you know, Italy or, or Indonesia. So, you know, when you open up this global market for U.S. tech products, um, that is something that is really attractive to entrepreneurs and investors who, you know, for a very long time, they've you know, always questioned how big can the education market be? Um, 
especially if you're just selling to schools, right? But, you know, we've seen consumer demand kind of go through the roof. And now we are seeing um, in the U.S. and I think increasingly in other parts of the world that, you know, schools are going to look, uh, you know, to the U.S. for, uh, you know, some tools and services uh, as well. So, yeah, I mean, these are two kind of tailwinds. And I think, you know, on the global market side, it kind of it goes the other way too. You know, I think that there are probably going to be uh, companies, uh, you know, outside the U.S. that see a lot of traction in the U.S. So I'm thinking about like Kahoot, which is that, uh, you know, gamified learning platform um, from Norway that's very popular in the U.S. Um, I'm seeing Baiju's from India also try to start to make inroads here as well. So, you know, there are these cross currents that I think which are going to just uh, open up a lot of opportunity and present, uh, you know, a lot of uh, yeah, you know, potential. Yeah, and as I say many times on the show, I, I really believe this is the dawn of the golden age of education, not just online education, but education in general. And uh, I think a good sign of that is the, the ed tech uh, exporting uh, from the U.S., but also importing from the rest of the world. It really does seem like this a global shift uh, is actually taking place that we've been talking about for, for 10, 20 years now, um, which is exciting. And to your point about the infrastructure, uh, I'll plug a recent episode of uh, Voices of eLearning with uh, Melina uh, Albright from AT&T's Corporate Responsibility uh, Division, as well as uh, Sal Khan from the Khan Academy, uh, talking about that very thing uh, and what's been done and what's continuing to be done uh, this year and really commitments over the next couple of years to close the digital divide um, as close to zero as possible. Uh, and that certainly is a big factor in all this investment uh, in the future of ed tech. Um, I want to end on this, uh, kind of the way you end uh, this write-up. Um, as exits accelerate, so do valuations and competition. Um, give us just kind of uh, some final thoughts on, uh, on, on what you mean by that. Um, yeah, this is uh, continue with my last comment around kind of the growing market uh, size and, um, you know, now that investors have seen that ed tech companies can be global presence and brands, um, we are seeing, uh, you know, some of the, I would say the, you know, the, the deep pocketed investors, you know, look a lot more carefully at, at the space and are, um, are a lot more active in pursuing opportunities uh, in the education technology market. So, you know, as I said, you know, about, about 10 years ago, there weren't that many investors interested in that tech. Now we are seeing, you know, some of the big names uh, kind of in, uh, you know, some of the, you know, term sheets uh, and, you know, other, um, in, in other places. So, you know, company, you know, firms like Andrews and Horowitz and General Catalyst to the TCVs and the Tiger Global Management, uh, they are they've all done deals uh, in that tech this year, and you know we've seen that they are kind of like on the lookout uh, for um, other deals to come. So I think you know this kind of speaks to one of the impacts of um, you know the the growing market size and uh, the acceleration of kind of exits that we're seeing. You know some of the financial returns and payouts that. Um, the industry has been long waiting for, right? Just, you know, we're finally seeing some of these returns that are commensurate with the impact uh, and the reach that education companies uh, are having uh, across the U.S. and across the globe. Um, but, you know, when you see, you know, some of these big names uh, in the investment space, you know, they're deep pocketed, uh, you know, which means that uh, generally means that, you know, they are more, um, 
I would say ambitious <laughs> and perhaps sometimes even more aggressive, right. And kind of wanting to win out on deals and kind of write big checks, even, you know, sometimes try to preempt, uh, and, you know, get in on a round before, you know, the, the normal kind of shopping period and cycle that entrepreneurs go around. So I think the pace uh, of deals getting done has, has also picked up as well as the sizes of the checks. You know, it kind of, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the craziness of like trying, you know, the real estate market, right. And, yeah. uh, you know, just in, in some parts of the U S where, you know, you've got people coming in with bids that are, you know, much higher, right. than what the, you know, what the listing price is and they are, you know, doing these deals in a matter of days. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, they will forego even disclosures, right. And, you know, the inspections when you buy a place. So, it's different, but, you know, the, a lot of the analogy is kind of similar in that, like the time span in which deals are getting done is a lot faster than what is normally allotted for when you do research and diligence, uh, you know, before, you know, writing a check. And this is the most important time to have Tony Wan on your team. So again, congrats to reach to getting Tony. Um, and so to sum up, would you say EdTech investment has really become mainstream uh, in the last six to 12 months? Yes. Uh, definitely. It has arrived. That's really exciting. And uh, continuing the conversation, I know we'll have you on here in the next three to six months for another update, uh, but we'll also uh, get a chance to meet live uh, next month at the ASU GSV Summit. So uh, we're looking forward to that. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, JW. It is a pleasure to be, uh, you know, to have you on, on the calendar, uh, you know, every six months for these updates. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you and many other people in this industry for my what will be my first in-person event uh, in oh, 2021. What, over what, 50, it's been 15 months now. I, I lost track of time. It's a pandemic, <laughs> you know. It's <laughs> too many months. Feels like too many years. Yeah. So yeah, it'd be good to see in per, uh, see folks in person at ASU GSV Summit. Awesome. And to my audience, thank you for joining another really interesting episode of Voices of E Learning. Be sure to check out past episodes on our website or wherever you consume your podcast and look out for a new episode next week. Thanks again and always, always keep learning.